This conference will now be recorded. I think this is going to be so much fun. All right. Well, I've got my radio well, voice. Okay, good. <laughs> That's you got a lot of you got a lot of gray hair going on here. Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, we're we're calling this the Damn It Jim podcast, <laughs> unofficially maybe. Uh, welcome to the Gary Designs Gary Dawson Designs podcast. Today I have with me my two really good friends, Joel McFadden and Jim Dala. Joel McFadden is the owner of Joel McFadden Designs in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. At 12 years old, his career in jewelry began by learning bench work from his grandfather at McFadden Jewelers. He developed pricing for custom jewelry and repair work for the IJO Prototype Store in Greenfield, uh, is that Massachusetts, I guess? Uh, opened a business which became a million dollar store focusing on custom, was named MJSA's first mentor jeweler, and was the first director of the Council of Custom Jewelers. He is the creator of the Bench Jewelers Challenge seen at trade shows. He has a passion for teaching and sharing his expertise. He is a writer for industry publications and speaker at industry events. He is available for CAD work, stone setting, and complete custom pieces for customers and the trade. That was Joel. Jim, uh, Jim Daly, after watching a friend skillfully cut an opal during college in 1977, Jim knew that he had found an outlet for his creative passion. He spent the next 13 years furthering his education and gaining experience in a variety of metalsmithing techniques. His enthusiasm, and genuine love of the craft is evident in every piece created. His education, uh, BFA at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, MFA at the Tyler School of Art, Temple University, Pennsylvania. He has taught at all of the following. Uh, Central Oregon Community College in Bend, Oregon, College, Oregon College of Art and Crafts, Portland, Oregon, University of Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, a visiting assistant professor, Tyler School of Art, Temple University, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and Stevens Point, Wisconsin, as an instructor of art, Central Oregon Community College in Bend, Oregon, and the Tyler School of Art, Temple University. I think I just, I think that's redundant. I think we talked about Tyler. Right. Anyway, speaking of gray hair, I think between the three of us, there are probably at least, if not over 150 years of experience here in the room today. Uh, I'm, a little, I'm, I'm uh, embarrassed to, or something. Joel, I sent you an email. Would you, you want to read my bio? I think people Yes, sir. <clears throat> Our host, Gary Dawson, is the owner of Gary Dawson Designs, an online custom design operation that was once featured as the best of the best by in-store magazine, as well as operating as Rhino Jewelry CAD, a CAD CAM educational solution for jewelers, offering a full course of instruction in Rhino 3D. Dawson has over 50 years experience in creating designs that capture the personalities and stories of the customer. And he is a frequent contributor to MJSA Journal. He is one of only three mentor jewelers named as such by MJSA and has delivered seminars and presentations at numerous events, including AGTA Gem Fair, Portland Jewelers Symposium, 
and the Santa Fe Symposium of Jewelry Manufacturing Technology. And he is also an old friend of mine who I respect tremendously. Oh, gosh. Bosh, yeah, that's <laughs> what I should say. Uh, well, that's the three of us. And uh, we we came up with tentative topics, although as, as all of my podcasts are, this will be relatively unscripted and uncensored, too. So if... Uh, I think at least a couple of us, if not all three of us, are in kind of rant mode here. So there could be some, somebody might drop the F-bomb. If that's going to be horribly offending to you, then uh, please try and edit this. I'm not going to <laughs> before you show it to your kids. Uh, some of the topics we thought we might touch upon, though, are uh, in the realm of uh, doing trade work. Uh, I think I said either have a specific goal or be willing to give the designer creative license. Clearly communicate all relevant information up front. Those two kind of go together. Expect to pay when the project is delivered. Joel came up with a couple here. How long does it take to create a piece of jewelry and the value of craftsmanship? And then Jim uh, echoed the communication theme. Uh, he, he suggests there might be a sit-down conversation with the designer, maker, and the retail staff on how to or a how-to sheet created by the designer that the retail staff uses with each customer. Not only used to take notes on what the customer is thinking, but should also include questions that we as designers want and need to be asked. Okay, this whole idea was to just simplify the communication process. Right. Um, in a perfect world, I would prefer to be the one communicating. I'm, I'm certainly going to touch on that topic later. Um, and then, uh, let's see, another just a simple tip, kind of logistics. When creating rings, the client's finger should be sized at least twice. He suggests three times. Um, I've always said, too, a finger size is a moving target, so that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that if and when the retailer gets a deposit, to begin a project, that the designer should receive part of that deposit as well, unless the retailer is supplying all materials. Well, we can break that down and and talk about. I have some ideas about that too. Um, but that's what this podcast is going to be about. I hope if you begun listening to this, you'll stick with us because it should be fun. I think we're probably going to have some laughs along the way. And, so where do you guys, yeah, is there any particular place you want to start? Joel, you want to jump off on something here, on one of the topics that you? Well, <clears throat> that's right. Well, yeah. uh, that, you got the buzzer. Okay, Jim. <laughs> well, then I, I think what I would uh, suggest maybe starting at least my part of the conversation with is, each individual along the line, and the more people you end up in this conversation from the staff person to if there's a go-between to, you know, there may be three, four, five, six different people by the time it goes from the customer to ourselves. And so there true. just simply has to be some common thread to the vocabulary and the communication itself. That's one reason why I strongly suggested whenever possible to communicate directly with the, the client. Uh, because there's just so many interpretations of going from the conceptual verbal communications 
to the more concrete structural form functionality in those various aspects of the finished piece of jewelry. And uh, I, I think we're also probably, and I, I don't want to uh, step on any toes, but I guess it's just our toes. So maybe that's not a problem, but I, I think there's probably gonna be a lot of egos in between, again, going from the client to the maker itself. Uh, and each of those individuals are probably going to feel like their vocabulary is spot on what needs to be said, asked, and uh, relayed. But again, I think the, the room for interpretation, the potential for information that is critical, either not being covered or not being covered thoroughly enough, I think there's just simply a lot of room for uh, reading between the lines. And I think that can be really problematic. And forgive me for continuing, but I, I just had a situation like this. Well, I'm in Bend, Oregon, and uh, I don't do a lot of work for retailers, but I went in and did not talk to the client, talked to the owner of the store. And what I ended up creating, even though it was exactly what they requested, evidently was very different than what they were looking for. And so any and all methodology that I think can be incorporated into this ongoing process, uh, not necessarily to streamline, but just for articulateness and accuracy is in my mind, probably the most important part of this other than getting paid for the work. You're absolutely right. Right now I'm dealing with a, a lady that keeps referring to flush set and she doesn't really understand what flush set is. She has, a, I'm sure she's seen it. She's probably seen a picture on Pinterest or someplace and it said flush set. And she keeps saying, I want flush set, but I can't do what she wants because, you know, as we all know, flush set means a blank surface with the metal put into it, but she doesn't want to have a lot of metal showing. So, how do you do a flush set without having at least a millimeter on each side of the stone? So it, that's a big problem. A lot of people pick up on terminology. You know, I'll give you another example. Uh, I had a salesperson that heard me say that one of the advantages to using platinum and prong setting is platinum has no memory. So when you bend the platinum prongs in, they stay. Whereas white gold, you have to vector them because they always swing out 33% or what like that. But my salesperson heard it backwards. And for like months, she told every customer, platinum is great because it has memory. And, you know, and this happens all the time. Uh, you know, and the more people you add, the more opportunity there is for that confusion. <clears throat> there's, right. a parlor, there's a parlor game, I think, where somebody says a sentence, you know, whatever, like, Rosemary's wearing green panties today and, and then whispers it into the ear right. of the next person. And by the time it gets around the room, it's uh, Rosemary's sure. husband cut, cut the green grass last weekend. You know, yeah. it's completely distorted. Um, yeah. And I, I feel so strongly about this that with at least some clients, <clears throat> I'm no longer acting as a third-party designer, I, I won't do that for them anymore because the communication has been so hard. 
what I'll do is, is uh, you know, if they want to work with me, I work directly with the client and the retailer gets a commission. And that just, I think that that's a great solution. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of retailers, uh, you mentioned big egos, Jim. Uh, it's the big ego problem. It's the, it's the trust issues where they think you're going to steal their customer. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm still doing third-party design, but I've, I've, I've been this close. I'm holding up my fingers to a millimeter here. Um, I've been this close to just saying, screw it. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do third-party design. If I can't communicate directly <clears throat> with the client, then I don't want to do it. Uh, <clears throat> some people... I have to say that I've worked with are really great. That communication process is seamless. We're on the same page in terms of vocabulary, but it is so often problematic that I, you know, that's, I'm glad we're talking about this first because if, if there's one message that we can get across, uh, communication, I think is the key for all. So, so Gary, in your successful situation that you just mentioned, do you have, Oh, a, uh, a spreadsheet or a list or something that you and the retailer have agreed upon for communicating or questions that are, again, are quite literally you are both on the same page? No, uh, I haven't ever gotten to the point of writing a list, and I think that that's a great suggestion. Um, can I, can I inter interject a story of two clients? Yeah. So I wrote about one of these in Southern Jeweler and Midwest Jeweler. We had, when I, when I left my job and I started my own business, one of the first clients I picked up was a very nice gentleman that runs a retail store. And he pulled a envelope for a custom project out of his safe that he had had for over a year and had not gotten back to the customer. The jewelry was there. It was her engagement set and she wanted it redesigned. He had, he, and all he would do is go through catalogs, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we tried to work with him and he just, he didn't seem to understand what the customer wanted. So I said, finally, can I just send my partner to talk to the client or let me talk directly to the client? Cause he was nearby. We went, talked to the client. He was the jeweler him, the store owner, I should say was completely not listening to the client. He was just trying to come up with what he thought he wanted to sell. And we ended up making $8,500 uh, remount for this lady and she loved it. We met with her in person. We delivered the piece in person. The transaction was done on the store owner's credit card. And then he had the nerve to look at me and say, I wished I had made more than $4,000 on this. So we didn't work with them anymore. Now I'll give you the other client is a lady who will tell you right up front, I sell jewelry. I am not a designer. You're my designer. And we did one project with her where I related directly to the client over email. I said, I worked for her. I said, I was her designer that we agreed upon that. We did that project and she took a markup and she was super happy with it. We now do three projects or more a month with her. So as wow. a retailer, her taking that attitude, you know, she's like, okay, I'm making three or $4,000 a month that I wasn't making before, but it's happening well because 
I'm not trying to get in between my designer and my client. I'm trying to make that uh, an easy thing to do. Whereas a lot of jewelers, as you both said, store owners, you know, they're jealous. They're afraid you're going to steal their customer. They're afraid they're not going to get their, their profit or their markup. That's just old school thinking. People have to move beyond that. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, God, where did I? There was a meme that popped into my head, but it just popped out the other side. I got to start drinking like you guys are, and then I can have a more relevant. <laughs> hey, my, my, I just want to say I'm drinking lemonade. Not lemonade. <laughs> I thought you said that was white wine. No, it is. It is. I was just trying to be polite to the audience. No, screw the audience. No, I don't mean that. Uh, this is for the audience. I don't really mean screw the audience. But the the idea is that, you know, that we have a loose conversation, I guess. So I'm glad you're drinking white wine. I think Bill's drinking it. I'm going to get a beer. Never mind. You guys get a beer. Right. I, it's oh, right, right here. Yeah. See how my beer fridge is like. Yeah, you, you've got the setup. I do. You don't even have to get in your chair. Right, right. Okay. Well, we made, I think we, we didn't belabor it. We gave examples. We cited an important point about communication. And we offered some solutions, I think, in this case, to, you know, the idea of maybe letting your designer, Goldsmith, work directly with the client and be happy with the yeah. commission instead of looking for the cheapest designer on the planet. You know, somebody that will scrape out a CAD design for you and then maybe cast it if they know how to cast. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, work with somebody who knows what they're doing. And then, well, and then you know, trust I, I, I'm sorry, Gary, go ahead. No, I just, I finished. Trust them. Okay. Some, something Here's... I was going to kind of toss into the mix. And I, I tell a lot of my clients this, uh, Joel, I don't know if you know, but most of my work, uh, well, 90% of it is long distance. In fact, right now, I'm, <laughs> thanks to Gary, I'm working with a gentleman or just recently worked with a gentleman in Berlin, Germany. And one of the things that I tell them uh, is that trust is a very important factor on every aspect, every level of what we do, not only with the client and, you know, hopefully they will pay us, but with our stone suppliers, our metal suppliers, those who we work for. Um, and so creating that alignment or that relationship with the retailer so that they trust us because we're trusting them to pay us after we do all this work. So again, trust is on every level in my mind. And uh, in my mind, they've got nothing but win-win uh, if they trust people like ourselves that we're not going to compete, you know, there, there's going to be open-ended communication uh, on the various levels. Um, but if if they distrust us for whatever reason, for attempting to steal their client, for overcharging, whatever, then really it's not a very good working relationship. No. Uh, and as Gary's mentioned, I, I think that's the time to pull the plug and not work with them anymore because, you know, emotionally and physically, it's a headache. Uh, it's stressful. It's just it's just not worth the effort for what we well, get out of know, it. The worst one is when you do a project, and I, I love it when I would go in to pick up a job from a retailer, and he'd go, I don't remember the whole thing, but do this. You do that, 
He says, that looks great when you drop it off. He delivers it to the customer. He calls you a week later. He says, that's not at all what the customer wanted. Well, that's not my fault, right? you know, but he's going to put it on me. And I'll say, but this is what you say. Yeah, it is, but it's not what the customer wanted. Well, how did we get to the point where we're building not what the customer wanted? It's, there has to be more trust. And I think that, you know, in my lifetime, the jewelry industry changed from craftsmen were jewelers, craftsmen open jewelry stores, or you might get a gemologist opening a jewelry store to, there were jewelry stores on every corner. You know, in the eighties, when we opened the malls, we probably tripled or quadrupled the outlets for retail jewelry in the United States. But we didn't triple or quadruple the craftsmen. We just tripled and quadrupled salespeople. And, you know, so, you know, one of my pet peeves is that we told we hired attractive women predominantly because a man would go, a man would purchase or there was self-purchase. And, you know, you would ask, I remember I worked at one of these places when I was 17 or 18, and, you know, and, and I would look at, uh, you know, the person and say, why is this so expensive? Or I'd listen to a customer say, why is this diamond ring expensive? And the girl would go, because it's diamonds and gold. Well, today, everybody knows what diamonds and gold cost, and they don't understand what the cost is. You know, the cost is craftsmanship and design. They don't understand that because right. we've educated the public and we've educated the sales staff to say it's diamonds and gold. That's why it's expensive. And, and now right. that is really hurting us. I think the jewelry, I've said this before, Joel, I know you've heard me kind of rant this is one of my rants is the jewelry industry shot itself in the foot when it went from mom and pop stores with possibly a goldsmith to the situation you're talking about where most stores just had salespeople and right. maybe not even a repair shop in there. Uh, and then it became competing for pennies, you know, how they would make markups that they never expected to get. And then this, the item or the items in the store would never be offered for sale at that price. They'd be offered for sale at 20, 50, 70% off. And so it became, jewelry became a commodity. It became commoditized, right. I think, in that level. And we got for, for a bunch of years, maybe what, from the 50s, on through the when was when was the craft there was a kind of a craft renaissance in the 70s where we got a little bit right. of craftsmanship and actually right. that they, probably were we're all of the era that that was the that was the change in culture that kind of propelled our careers i right. suspect i right. know it did mine but then things yeah, kind that, of got back to commercialized you know commercialized production yeah. Yeah, that would actually be another really amazing future conversation is about the evolution of shows. Now, I, I don't do shows and I haven't really done them for 15 or 20 years, but there's just an oversaturation of that market as well. But something that I, I find that fortunately, fortunately, and this might sound severe, but I don't have a lot of what I call bottom dwellers approaching me. Uh, but when I say that, I mean people looking for the rock bottom price that I will 
create something for them. You know, usually people that approach me individually, they're looking for a story or a connection. Um, but, you know, when you're dealing with just to throw out some random names like Costco jewelry and such, uh, such large volumes mass produced by people that are probably not making more than a few dollars a day wherever in the world they're making it. But um, one of the things I tend to tell my clients is that nobody is going to give the attention and concern and awareness as when I'm creating a custom piece for them. And um, some retailers I've come across, they're really surprised by my prices but there is a tremendous amount of time both on the front and the back end well mostly the front in the communication sourcing of materials and that rather than just making a stock piece and plopping their stone in it um anyway yeah. you know I, no along that line i was just talking today at work because i went to work today and you know one thing that store owners don't understand and a lot of people in the jewelry industry understand but certainly a lot of retail clients don't understand is if they come to me and they want a very unique design and let's say I charge them a thousand dollars for that unique design I'm gonna create one I might spend a day two days or three days creating this concept before I even start building anything for them right and you know a thousand dollars is a number maybe it's 500 but let's just say it's a thousand dollars and they don't understand why are you charging me a you know, why is my piece of jewelry a thousand dollars more? Well, on the other hand, I could take that design and replicate it a thousand times and sell it and only charge a dollar for the design fee for each piece, which is how most people see jewelry. You know, you can, when you mass produce stuff, you can do that. But when you're making one of a kind, you can't. But I'll give you another one that, that I, I've, I work with a lot of retailers and I mentioned to a friend of mine who's in the retail world, who's actually in the media world. I said, I'd love to make you a pave ring because it's my favorite thing to do. And she goes, oh no, I will never have a pave ring because the diamonds always fall out. And I'm like, what? She goes, every pave ring I've ever seen the diamonds fall out almost right away. And I'm thinking, and I said, Bought it on a cruise ship. <laughs> yeah, I'm like 35 years ago, I built a big pave ring and it's for a person that lifts weights and works out and she's never lost a diamond out of it in 35 years. I said, the reason you're losing a diamond is not because it's pave, it's because it's badly crafted pave. Right. Cast in place, probably. And, and that's a, a problem, you know? Right. Well, and that's when the manufacturers put time and efficiency over quality and, and care. Right. And, you know, I spoke to one of my old apprentices the other day who works for a big retail chain. And he's getting very frustrated because he spends a significant amount of his day repairing brand new inventory that's getting ready to go in a case. Missing a diamond, scratched, bent prongs, catchy prongs. <clears throat> so we're going off to the, the United States jewelry industry typically goes offshore to have stuff manufactured as cheaply as possible. And then we pay a jeweler locally to fix it instead of paying to build it locally properly. What's wrong with that picture? Completely so, wrong. So if I could even expand on that, um, 
before we had our conversation today, we had just a brief conversation with the three of us. And I think it was Jewel that mentioned Etsy uh, and not to pick on them, but there is a trend in a lot of jewelry today. And I won't say from Etsy specifically, but you see a lot of it that is extremely delicate. And quite honestly, a lot of them are beautiful designs, but there seems to be this lapse between the there functionality. Right yeah, and and yeah, the, the point of contact with a nice large stone, possibly a halo, it's hard to see from the image, but um, you know, the delicacy from a purely visual standpoint can be very appealing. But for especially rings and especially everyday rings, such as engagement wedding rings, where they're going to be worn to the gym or in the garden or whatever the case might be, between the metal, the poor quality craftsmanship and the delicacy just structurally, you know, you might get a week or two worth of wear out of it. Uh, it's, but I, I'm, for me, I'm having more people approach me to create pieces, not 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 replicating, but with that train of thought, and I, I will always tell them that yes, it's it might be a nice looking piece, but the longevity is it, it's going to fail miserably and quickly. Um, so I, I think we're battling a number of things that parallel that. Yeah, Gary, I'm sorry. Oh, that's fine. You're, I, it's an excellent point, and it's a great segue into what I would like to call this segment empowerment uh as a designer for people who are doing work for your retail clients or doing trade work empower yourself develop the ability to unabashedly say no when you know something's not going to work uh, what what seems to be most often i mean early in my career i didn't have I wasn't very empowered. I didn't have that ability to say no. And I ended up with pieces that kept coming back and coming back and coming back because I did it exactly the way the customer wanted it to be done. Jim, is there any way you can stabilize your camera there? You're like, yeah, I will. All over the screen. Well, you know, we're having a little earthquake up. We're having an earthquake up in Oregon right now. It's your doodle. It's your doodle. Yeah, it's it is doodle. my doodle. <laughs> uh, so let, I want to talk okay. about empowerment. This is my rant for right now. Fucking say no sometimes, you know, just it's okay to say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I had a, I had a trade client here in Tucson. Guy was really excited that I moved down here and, and wanted me to do some design work for him. And, uh, and, and this happens to be a topic that you and I talked about, Jim. This guy wanted to do a bunch of little stones and embed them in the metal with no clean-out holes. And basically I said, I'm not gonna do that for you. You know, right. I will I will figure out a way for the clean-out holes to be there. And, you yeah. know, unfortunately I, I ended up uh, giving up that account because the guy was just, well, that's what my clients want. They don't want to see holes in the inside of the ring. I said, well, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of other people that will do that for you. But if, if my name is gonna be associated with it in any way, um, then I'm just, and that's probably one of those things where if you had talked to the client directly and explained why you thought they needed to have clean out holes, the client would probably say, yeah, okay, cool. But the salesperson doesn't want to, you know, what I, I read the last, it's funny because like I was telling Gary earlier, this is the first time in a while that I've been able to speak without being an employee of somebody else having my own business. 
I, I remember it wasn't that long ago, I just came to work for the store that's famous. And I was shocked that nobody knew anything. And yeah. what really what really shocked me was we had this 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 time lapse where they would treat me like just do what I say. Just do it this way. And I finally got to the point where I realized, and I, I actually said to the store manager, how long have you been in the jewelry industry? She said, two and a half years. And I said, look, I know what I'm talking about. Just come and ask me. And she's like, is that really okay? Because I'm still your boss. I'm like, who cares? And yeah. you know, we, we bridged that gap. But there was this fear she had of me realizing that she didn't know what she was talking about. And I think that like my client that I'm doing so much custom work with, just put that aside. I've been a jeweler for 51 years. You've been in the jewelry industry two or three or five. You know, just ask me. I, I, there's nothing to be about egos. Let's just make the customer happy. Going back to the getting paid part of it and why some people like raise their eyebrows at your fee, whatever it is. And, you know, because somebody down the street that's been maybe doing CAD for six, eight months and think they can design jewelry, uh, you know, they'll charge them. 75 bucks to create a model or something like that you're not when you yeah. pay me 350 bucks to create a model you're not paying for just the model you're paying for the 50 years of experience that i bring into yeah. this so it's going to be done right you know you know there's a little story i'll, I'll tell right now um for a number of years i would go down to tucson and or the vegas show and uh, help with uh, auto fried, not to push their uh, their company, but I would basically sell tools with them at the trade shows. And uh, this one, oh yeah, this one night we were at the designer showcase dinner in Vegas, and um, we were sitting at a larger table, and there was John Fry, Tim Shea, Jeff Jorganis, and Dina uh, Ficaccio, who is a, a dear friend of mine, and. There was this young couple from New York, and I'll never forget this because it seems like there's certain trades, fields where if they play guitar, they're guitarists. If they own a camera, they're they're a photographer. So we we yeah. were at this. Uh, I know where you're we going. Were, yeah, we were <laughs> we were at this designer showcase dinner. It was just so funny. And this young couple was from New York. The husband was a stockbroker. His wife was a jewelry designer. And through the course of the evening in the conversation, she would basically send off her facts, I believe at the time, facts off her drawings to somebody in Asia. And then they would send back finished pieces. And my friend Dina, who was sitting next to the husband, she did a lot of these beautiful octopus type bracelets and such. And uh, so the husband commented on that and, and she said, oh yeah, I just made that for the show. And he was in disbelief that she actually made it. And, and it just really signified to me how easily tags people will take on. Like, oh, I'm a jewelry designer, but they work with wire and beads or whatever the case might be. And again, I think this gets back to a, a strong common thread of vocabulary and knowledge, um, which is what, you know, both of you have been talking about in various ways. And 
we have these preconceptions. Oh, I know so much, but yet you're sitting next to somebody like Joel with 51 years of experience. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, you know, I was thinking about that very thing today and I wanted to say this. <clears throat> so we did not protect the word jeweler and plumbers protect the word plumber. Doctors protect the word do doctor and lawyers protect the word lawyer. I'm watching suits right now. So I actually used to attend law school with my former partner. Um, so I was married to a lawyer for 30 years. I've also been in court because I was involved in, in enforcement in Massachusetts and I was a town counselor. So I've been in court a lot. I've actually gone to law school. I've actually sat there and watched people take the bar and uh, I was married to a lawyer. So does that mean I can call myself a lawyer I know the terminology, mostly. I know how things work, mostly. Can I call it? Hell no. I can't call myself a lawyer. But you can hire me to work at your jewelry store. And the first day I'm there, I'm a jeweler. Our jewelry designer. You know, I don't think, th I think that's a problem we have. You yeah. Know? And it's created a tremendous amount of mistrust in the industry. Etsy drives me crazy because it, it, it's supposed to be a place for people to handcraft jewelry and it's not, it's not anymore. But Let's I wanna, go ahead. Let's see if we agree on some terminology here. And, and this is a follow up on your point for sure, because in my mind, a jeweler can, can simply be a merchant that sells jewelry. That's what jeweler means in my mind. A, really? goldsmith, a goldsmith is a person who works at the bench and does repair and manufactures jewelry. A designer goldsmith is a person who can design the jewelry, and then maybe, maybe even do what I like to <clears throat> claim for myself a lot is sole authorship from concept to final finish. That would be a designer goldsmith. A silversmith, you know, technically, is someone that raises uh, tea sets and glasses and stuff like that. Right. Um, so do we agree on those terms or do you Absolutely. guys? Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, it, I'm sorry, Joe, go ahead. Oh, no. I'm Okay, uh, you know, if you don't mind, I would like to, let me say what I perceive about myself, and this has evolved over many years, um, but I would love to hear how you perceive yourself as far as the vocabulary. But anymore when I introduce myself, not, not to a client or a potential client, I, I usually consider myself a maker. I also tend to introduce myself as a metalsmith who do, who makes jewelry because, you know, I work in gold, platinum, titanium, stainless steel occasionally, pewter on occasion, not for jewelry, but for other things. And there's so many potential descriptives that we can use. But for me, when I think of a jeweler or the term jeweler, for me, it's almost being more of a marketeer rather than the maker does that make sense yes i think that's just uh i think you paraphrased what i was trying to express there someone who's a jeweler 
maybe they're a designer goldsmith, uh, but but someone who claims to be a jeweler can simply be a merchant. And that's I call myself an artist, and I just leave it at that because I, you know, I've gone through this phase where you know I've done when I was in New Jersey, I did a lot of work for celebrities, and I did a lot of really expensive pieces. And I used to talk about that, and I realized that my clients don't care. That doesn't mean anything to them. They care what I can do for them. So I tell them I'm an artist or I'm a craftsman. And I might say jeweler, but I just try to make it about me and them because, you know, uh, the, it's, we can't put the terminology back in the bag. It's done. You know, Gary, you and I worked hard with MJSA to try to create terminology that we right. could, and, and, and the trade, the jewelry industry does not want that. They do not want terminology. Hmm. I kind of want to be able to wing it. I think that's part of the, part of the problem going back to the whole communication thing. It's funny. You, I hesitate to call myself artist. I love it when other people call me an artist. It's like, I would never call myself an expert, for example. I've been called expert many times, you know, in trade magazines and variety of different places. But I, I have a hard time claiming that for myself the same yeah. way. And I feel kind of the same way about artists. I think for myself, I prefer when other people recognize that in me. Yeah. You know, I, not that I not that I don't see myself that way. I'm just saying it's a term I hesitate to throw around. In the 1990s, I went to work for IJO, and I was at the three prototype stores in New England, and I called myself a master goldsmith at the time because I felt I could cast, I could forge, I could fabricate, I could set stones. When it comes to working with gold, and in, in, in the opinion of Jurgen Merritt, of all people. <laughs> He said he considered me a master goldsmith. So I took that title on. I was very proud. I was very young or I was younger. And, you know, the people that were running IJO at the time thought that was an amazing and they marketed the heck out of it, which blew up in their face when I quit. But then they created IJO Master Jeweler. And mm -hmm. to be an IJO Master Jeweler, you had to join IJO and pay a fee. That's it. You know, I, I was talking about the fact that I'd been a jeweler for, I don't know, I think at the time it was like 18 years and my family's been in the trade forever. And, you know, you could give me a lump of gold and I could turn a ring out of it. But, you know, for them, it was a marketing term. And I think that's right. why I like to use artists. If I say jeweler, people have this perception, you know, you know, one of the questions that I brought up was, to kind of shift subjects was how long does it take to make something? And now that I have a retail location, I have people coming in who think I can make a ring overnight. They think I can design it, cast it, set the stones and give it, have it for them the next day. It's that, it's that magic box mentality because they don't have any idea what craftsmanship is. You know, I live in a college town in a large apartment tower. And one of the things that's strange here, according to the management here, if you ask most of the tenants how you change a light bulb, do you know what most of the tenants say? 
about how you change the light bulb? Call the super. You call maintenance. Yeah. We don't teach people how things are made anymore. They don't right. understand that, that it takes time because they're used to going to a store and buying something that's made and dealing with it. Yeah. And that's a big mistake we've made as a trade. Well, that uh, for me is a, a huge side topic, but that's in my mind, one of the big downfalls of our country is I, in my mind, I think we became a great country because we created and made amazing things. You know, and I remember with Smith Corona, the last US typewriter company moved to Mexico and it's like, you know, we outsource everything anymore, except for people like us who, you know, have the love and the pride of taking an idea and bringing it to fruition. Yeah. Um, but that's that's just a gym thing. Well, you know, I, I was talking to somebody today about this. How many cell phones are made in the United States? Probably none. None, right? But how many fix-it stores or cell phone repair stores are there in the United States? Because we as a culture, as a society, want to purchase something as cheaply as possible. And nowadays we're prepared to pay substantial amounts of money to have it fixed. Right. And I'll give you another example. I had a client in Saturday, a new client. They came in and they had two rings. One came from the big chain and one came from Etsy. And they had gone back to the big chain to have the ring sized down. A 14 karat gold solitaire <clears throat> and a 10 karat diamond thingy, blingy thingy. The chain store told them it would be $500 and three to six weeks to size the rings down. $500. And I'm like, you know, my, my partner was like, that's crazy. And I thought it was crazy too. But I think that we actually, as a society in America, are looking at making more money by fixing badly manufactured products than we are manufacturing a quality product. Well, that goes kind of, you know, let's see. The, <laughs> bleh, God, I'm tied up for words. We, what we need to do, what I think really needs to happen is we need to start making things, first of all, that aren't throwaway, that can be repaired. Exactly. And, you know, that would be, that would be really cool. I don't see that happening with cell phones necessarily. But like taking it back to a piece of jewelry, a good, a well-made piece of jewelry can always get fixed or restored right. or repaired. First generation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's heirloom. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that can live perpetually with the right maintenance. Um, but so much of the stuff is manufactured with the idea that well, it's going to get lost or thrown away sometime pretty soon anyway. So mm -hmm. we don't really have to put much thought into. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to ask you, I want to bring up something that I just dug up a little bit ago. If you, and I'm going to use names because this is Google and we're not ruffling anybody's feathers, but you know, if you Google something, um, Google will present the top four questions that people typically ask about that product, right? You know, you, you get the page. And you've got 
you have the paid ads on the top and then the sponsored spots and then you get people also asked okay so i typed in how many jared's jewelers are there because i was curious and there's i think 100 what does it say there's like 250 but here is the first question that google popped up that is the most common question asked about jared's jewelers okay is jared jewelry jewelry really gold oh that's the first wow. question the second question the third question is is jared jewelry overpriced now i also turned that around and i typed k jewelers and the first question was how can k jewelers sell so cheap and then are zales and k the same jeweler i think it's fascinating that the whole trust of our industry is gone that's my point there you know i i had a client in recently that had gold plated jewelry and she said it was really she thought it was gold she wanted me to work on it she didn't really understand what gold plated was as opposed to gold was and we looked i looked at the site that she had bought it from and it said gold pendants but when you read it carefully you realize it's saying gold color this is a gold color as opposed to a silver color but the client doesn't know to do that you know right. they to them they said it's gold right you know well th this is kind of playing off of that but also the way i work um when i'm working directly with clients is i find that i do or at least attempt to do a great deal of education because most people when they come to me and they're looking to have something made they've got fairly narrow parameters as far as what they perceive to be true and their knowledge um and a lot of people really don't boy i've got the brain fart going on now gary <laughs> is that it's lemonade just, you're drinking <laughs> well i i just switched over to water um <laughs> so then maybe that's the issue that's but, the problem yeah a lot of people just well they're they're not experts no and when somebody comes to me i try to give them as much information as i can so that they can make a well-informed decision whether it's the material whether it's a setting i rarely do and i don't know about the two of you but i will rarely do a prong set anymore unless it is very specifically requested um primarily because of the longevity, especially if somebody wants to go prongs, I'll definitely push as hard as I can uh, not to lose the client, but definitely suggest going with six prongs rather than four, you know, oh, yeah. because of the simple fact you lose one prong from where or hitting on the edge of a table and you got half the stone uncovered. So yeah. uh, again, it, for me, it gets back to trying to build up that essence of trust with my clients and uh and also getting back to the notion of vocabulary i think what do you think walker so my dog walker i know you can't see it on the podcast but he's watching every word we say 
He's going to school on this. Uh, I have a little different tact, Jim. Maybe I'm more manipulative than you are. But I, I try really hard, and it seems to work better for me if I don't necessarily overwhelm my clients with information. Um, if you know, could you give you, an example, Gary? Well, I was just trying to come up with one. Let's say I'll have to think about it for a minute to come up with a great example. I think okay. uh, maybe Joel can jump in here with something. But but it's I think it's easy to overwhelm somebody at least in the beginning. Like for example, see if I can come up. You know, somebody says they want a wedding ring, you know? Okay, very broad category. And you can say, well, you can have platinum, 14 karat, 18 karat gold, and yellow, rose, or silver, or color. Or you can have, uh, you know, we can do it out of some unique material. And then, you know, we can make it out of prongs or bezel, or we can do some kind of innovative setting. By the time you've done that, they're their eyes are glazing over. And so you have to be kind of, you have to be a little bit careful about how you glean this information from them, I think. So, so with, with what you've said, and, and this is purely from a, a question standpoint, um, yeah. but would you talk about the, both the physical and the uh, visual qualities of say 10 carat versus 14 versus 18 carat, or does that not enter the equation at all for you? No, it definitely enters into the equation for me. I try and ask people a little bit about their lifestyle. Are they fly fishermen okay. and are scrambling over rocks all the time? Or do they sit in an office and do their nails most of the time? Uh, that's definitely part of my sort of triage for making somebody a ring. But, right. but here's, I think rather than offering choices a lot of times, maybe this is a better example, I will... I will try and lead them into offering me information, you know, like okay. instead of saying, well, you can have platinum, 14 karat, 18 karat, and three different colors, da, da, da. Say, well, what kind of metal were you thinking about? Oh, we right. were thinking about white gold. Okay, white gold's fine. Uh, were you thinking about 14 or 18 karat white gold? And or, then or, they would say, or, or what is it about white gold that you like? Yeah, exactly right. And then and I would say, say, I love how white it is. And then he might say, what about platinum? Well, and I would say perhaps right now, this is especially true. Were you aware that platinum is actually an incredible value as a white metal right now compared to white golds? Uh, have you considered that? So I'm still reacting to what you said about giving people these enormous volume of choices. I think so, my technique is more like, trying to listen to what they're telling me and then offering somewhat more limited choices within what Yeah, well, maybe I said that poorly because I guess what I'm referring to is not like going to a Chinese restaurant where you've got 10 pages of menu. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but uh, talking white gold, for example, you know, I've heard anywhere from 8 to 12% of the world's population has skin sensitivities to nickel. So, you know, one of the things I'd ask, because a lot of people, again, the lack of knowledge and vocabulary, they think of white gold as being the only white metal, that, that's loosely right. said, 
But, you know, uh, if, if there's skin sensitivities, uh, then platinum is the obvious choice in my mind. For about 15 years, palladium was my go-to for a lesser expensive option. Uh, and, and possibly a palladium white gold, which is what I did all my uh, inlaid pieces with. Um, and then anymore, if somebody's working on a really tight budget, um, and that's one of the very first questions I ask is what kind of budget, you know, where you want to spend a hundred dollars yeah. or a hundred thousand dollars. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I've been I'm, on a case, yeah, yeah. excuse me, just real quick. Uh, but yeah. I have been offering for people that are working on a tight budget, but want a white metal is the continuum silver, uh, which is a, 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 you know, a stellar metal with a little bit of palladium in it. Um, but anyway, that, I, I didn't want to sound like I'm offering wall. Well, we've got all these options. But again, when people come to me, they have such little knowledge of what can be made. I like to offer them just a little bit broader selection, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I, th I think we're basically on the same page. It's just that I, I What is the customer want? What are the best yeah. ways to make it? Right. You know, yeah. the funniest one I've had, and I love this story, it's hilarious. But there's so much information now because of the internet and Etsy. I had a client came in and wanted us to make a matching wedding band. I think I told Gary this one. But the customer wanted, insisted, that we use Spanish gold. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is a great what story. Is Spanish gold? And the customer said, well, we bought the engagement ring from an Etsy site. I went to the Etsy site, which I don't know if it's still there, but they went, it was a company in Spain and they went on about how gold from Spain is superior to gold from every other country because it was like, it was, we we're talking about grapes, you know, like we're talking about wine or something. And I told the customer that gold is gold most of the gold used in jewelry industry today is recycled. And I just can't, and I don't know of any gold mines in Spain. So I can't believe right. there's Spanish gold. She said, I know it's Spanish gold because it's got this really cool S stamped on the inside of the ring. <laughs> she shows me the S so I get the company from Lafayette, Louisiana. I show her the logo. And she goes, you mean this is made in Louisiana? I said, yeah. She says, but it's said on the website that it's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So when we talk about overwhelming our clients with information, I think we need to just give them the true information, the real information, because there's so much marketing stuff. Like right. a new term now is hidden halo. People want hidden halos. That's just diamonds set in a gallery to me. But, you know, some big company went ahead and came up with a name for it. Yeah. You know, um, and yeah, that's going to be a thing now. Halo, the whole term of Halo, who made that name up? Yeah. Yeah, the whole perception of marketing I find really fascinating and bewildering. But one of my favorite uh, parallels, what you were just talking about, Joel, is Amabe Pearl, because Amabe Pearl is, in essence, a blister pearl. Right. But, you know, how, how many people want to buy, oh, I've got a blister pearl? You know? <laughs> yep. Right. And Colombian emeralds. I mean, oh my goodness, these, oh, oh wait, 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 the, 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 the craziest one is there's a TV channel that sells jewelry. And I remember watching it and this guy is talking about Pariba tourmalines. And this is before they allowed Mozambique tourmaline to be called Pariba. So it was only Pariba. And they had three absolutely stunningly beautiful Pariba tourmalines 
on this table showing people look at these beautiful stones it's the color of caribbean water it's making you think you're on vacation you can wear this every day and they're talking about how rare and how expensive they are and then the presenter immediately goes into this thing but we have secured a small collection of Paribas topaz just for you the client at a great price and i'm like 99.9% of the world did not realize he just stopped talking from about paribatermaline. Now he's talking about paribatopaz, which does not exist. Right. It was just topaz that was colored. And, you know, and the world fell for it. Thousands red, of pieces. Red emeralds. Red emeralds. And do you guys remember? You guys are old enough, but did you ever remember the guy who was marketing yeah. royal royal blue labulite oh yeah yeah that it's just sugilite <laughs> but but he was selling royal he came up with a name and i think he made a ton of money on that before you know it kind of burned out i don't know yeah oh royal labulite right right and uh it's basically sugilite anyway here's yeah. one i have a question for you guys what is micropave that's that's bigger than macro pave. No, it's smaller than macro. <laughs> I mean, pave is a technique. Right? Pave is a technique. It's a method of setting gems. So, micro pave is. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that means the diamonds are just so small you need a microscope to set them. You know. I, uh, yeah, these, most setters use microscopes anyway. So. Um, you know, in the micropave that I've seen, and I, I've not seen a lot of it, but it looks like they're just incorporating small prongs into the settings anyway. So is it pave at that point with the prongs or is it simply the, you know, the closeness of the proximity? It's, it's technically it's pronglets. Micropave yeah. is either raising beads or cutting metal down. I learned micro. I learned how to do pave in 1978. That was my present for my 18th birthday. That's how weird I was. My parents said it's going to be your 18th birthday. What do you want? I want to learn how to do pave. They sent me to GIA for a week to do pave. Yeah. And I, and I'll tell you, I love stories. I'm a big storyteller. So we're in a hotel in Florida, and we've got 12 benches set up, and we're doing. Pave and the hotel put up a sign that said GIA Pave Diamond Setting Class. So the instructor, who was just hilarious, of course, we're setting CZs and, and silver and brass. So the instructor takes the CZs and drops a breadcrumb of them on Friday night, the next to the last night of the class, all the way to the bar. And we all go sit in the bar. And sure enough, about an hour and a half later, here comes three maids on their hands and knees crawling towards the bar, <laughs> the housekeeping. And, you know, he just looked at him and says, you realize those are glass. <laughs> oh, you just have to pick them up. <laughs> Sorry, that was just a funny sidebar. That's a good one. Let's talk for a minute. I wrote down something here that I'm interested in seeing what y'all think. I think Joel and I have had part of this conversation before. But where do you see the jewelry industry in 10 years? 
five years. Okay. What do you what do you think the future of the jewelry industry is? I'll I'll preface this by saying I my micro business like micro my micro business is no bellwether for sure. But I've talked to other people around the country that do the kind of work that we do. And in general, things seem pretty slow right now. You know, the the inflation, the worries about, you know, what the hell is happening in the world. Um, people are either not affording or not wanting as much as they did during COVID. I think we all kicked ass during COVID, right? Because people couldn't spend money on travel or, or dining even. You couldn't even go out to eat. So all those dusty projects in the back of their minds came out and we made a ton of money making custom jewelry. Right. Now people can travel, they can dine out, but, but now everything costs so much everything costs so much um that that it's it's kind of hard times right now i think for a lot of people you know um and i worry about people that are just trying to break into the jewelry industry right now um so anyway what do you what do you think is going to happen what what's what's the future look like and correct me if i'm wrong if you think i'm wrong if your business is absolutely booming right now tell me tell me how you're doing it Jen, you start. I'm going to get another drink. Okay. Um, actually, I was going to ask if you would start, but, um, <laughs> you know, for the last 10 years, my business has slowly been increasing. And uh, I don't know if Joel knows this, but uh, similar to both of you, I have no brick and mortar. I'm an Internet-based uh, jeweler. Um, that's how people find me through my website. And... Up until about three years ago, no, two years ago, things were at a gradual increase uh, and had been continuously. But something seems to have changed in the last year, maybe 18 months. Um, and I, I can't explain it. Now, Gary and I talked briefly about this the other day, that people are buying less luxury items, and that's probably accurate. Um, but... 95% of what I make, what I'm invited to create, are one-of-a-kind engagement wedding rings. That's almost entirely what I'm requested to do. So I, gosh, I am probably down, and I'm very bad at doing uh, <laughs> organized bookkeeping, but I'm probably down 30 to 40% from uh, 18 months ago. Um, and... You know, I totally rebuilt my website in the last three months, uh, which has helped. But uh, just this past weekend here in Bend, Oregon, was uh, a fairly major art show called Art in the High Desert. Uh, there were half a dozen jewelers I had dinner with uh, one evening, and they're they're good. They they tend to be more art jewelry as far as uh, materials and stones and such, but the quality is very good. And one individual from Portland I talked to uh, said that she's only had only one of her last six shows have been profitable. Uh, so there seems to be something. I don't know if it's financial. I don't know if it's social. I don't know if it's just the stress of what's going on globally right now. But uh, I'm down. 
Uh, was, that's was why Mark I've been spending so much more on teaching lately. I'm sorry, Joel. Was Mark, was Mark Grosser in that group? He was not part of the uh, group that I had dinner with that night. But do you know him? I, I know of him. Yeah, Mark is a friend of mine. And, you know, we've talked about that art show problem because that's his primary business. The problem with that that, that he talks about is the cost of being in an art show is astronomically rising. The cost of renting a retail space is astronomically right. rising. Right. The overhead right. in general is just going up and up and up. And you know, a lot of it has to do with built-in obsolescence of technology. You know, we're used to computers and stuff like that, but now we have to. Hey, hey. <laughs> Sorry, Cad just walked by. And oh. I think that I think that's a lot of the problem. You know, I just, I rented a space in a studio, a gallery, and it's working very well for me. But God, what am I going to do if I have to rent a retail space? Because they don't want to rent retail spaces to small people now. They want 4,000 square foot to 12,000, 15,000 square foot. Right. Corporations right. that will pay the rent even if the space is empty. And that's what they're building. Um, yeah. I think that... In five years, the typical jewelry retail outlet where you walk into a door and they have stuff in the case is going to go away. That's what's dying. And I don't know, Jim, if you know this, but I've lived in New Jersey, Chicago, Arkansas, North Carolina in the last three years. And what I'm seeing is brick and mortar retail stores closing in droves. And it's just the, the cost of the overhead is killing them. However, I'm well, saying, go ahead. I was also going to, I was going to ask, do you think that's partly because of the process of shopping has evolved so much, especially again, because of COVID and just COVID. going online and, you know, not, not to buy jewelry through Amazon, but to, to go online and shop rather than going okay. to that brick and mortar. Exactly. In Chicago, for example, during COVID, if you wanted groceries, you went online, you went on the website, you put everything in your cart and the grocery store delivered it to your building for free because they didn't want you in the grocery store. You really couldn't even go to the grocery store. So what COVID did is it forced everyone to learn to shop online. Everybody online, has, is, huh? online is booming already. Right. You know, the year over year sales online versus brick and mortar was already accelerating or accelerating at a, a parabolic, you know, pace. But but then COVID hit and it as you say, forced everybody to. So that was the crazy. last holdouts had had no choice. So I here's how I see the jewelry industry in five years. If you want to speak to an artist or a craftsman or a bench jeweler or something like that, that will help you create something one of a kind or use your materials, you're going to go to a, a studio or you're going to reach out to somebody over the internet like us and, and we're going to be fine. Or if you want to buy something that already exists, you know, I call it Amazon and Google. That's how I describe it. You know, the Google shopper is going to read reviews and they're going to want to develop a relationship with the person that they're doing business with. 
The right. Amazon shopper is going to enter, I want this product at the cheapest price delivered tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And that's what we're going to have. We're going to be the Google guys and the big chains that are online are going to be the, the Amazon guys. And, and, and you could take customers and see them that way. I mean, you've got the guy whose girlfriend says, I want a one carat dime with a halo. So he's going to go on Amazon. He's going to take one carat dime with a halo. Who's got the cheapest price? He's probably not going to know the difference between moist night, lab grown and natural. He's going to take the best price, buy it, give it to his girlfriend. Or you're going to get the guy who wants to have his girlfriend loves Disney princesses. Can we incorporate that into a design? Can we do something really special? One of a kind. But there's another market that I have found, which I have said for most of my career, I despise. And that is the person that bought something online and it's broken because that is a huge profit center for me. You know, I, I could size two rings. It takes me 20 minutes. It's a hundred dollars. I have no materials. Solder. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You know, so I, something that uh, has definitely been a big part of my business, uh, and I don't know if it's a Northwest thing. Uh, I don't know if it's the persona that people see in my website when they approach me, but, and this may sound like an odd parallel or uh, an odd introduction to this, but for myself, I love going to the farmer's market when I can in season, primarily because I really enjoy getting to know the people that grow some of my food or raise the beef or the mechanic that I take my car to. There's something about that relationship and that connection. Now, again, I don't know if it's regionality. I don't know if it's the, the personality of my website, but the people that come to me without fail, they're not interested in the best price or I mean, price is obviously an issue. We're all working with budgets, whatever that might be. But it seems like most people that come to me are looking either more for a story or a connection. Yes rather than just rather than just that commodity or that object and that's the google concept they're going to read your reviews they're going to read your website they're going to understand who you are and what your values are and that's who they want to have make their pieces right right i'll throw out, i'll throw out another perspective here which is yeah not not exclusive of any of things that you guys have discussed already but my buddy uh jason chandler who operates the uh Portland Jewelry Academy, and oh, yeah. he also had, he has a trade shop also. And something he's started to tell, I had a long conversation with him recently, kind of along these same lines. And he says, he tells his new students, you know, uh, you got to learn to sell to the 5%. And what he means by that is the 1% already have their diamonds and their jewels, and they've been in the family a long time and you're not probably going to sell to them because they're almost impossible to reach anyway but there's and and then the middle class that used to exist here in the u.s is, is completely washed up it's been mined and strafed and sucked dry for so long that your average working joe maybe would really love to have something with the connection, you know, but may not be able to afford it. But then there's the, the 4% that lies between the 1% and 
and then the rest of us still have some expendable income and are still willing to pay for craftsmanship. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I, I was, I thought that that was a pretty good analysis of what's going on. You, you can't, you can't make a living marketing below the top 5% hardly anymore. seems like. No. And well, I, you know, I'm going to throw you guys a curveball. Um, I've been working with a friend of mine. I think I've talked to Gary about it, who runs a company called Crafty Kilt. And Crafty Kilt sells big, chunky Viking jewelry, and it's 99% made of bronze. He casts pounds of bronze every month. And he makes chains and bracelets and earrings and rings are becoming more and more popular. And he does it in bronze. And they're very cool. He hand carves his waxes. He does some very ancient techniques. He does some ancient Viking techniques. His braiding wire, he does an ancient Viking technique, which he researched. And he sells his pieces for $200, $400, $800, but he sells them online and he's doing a lot. What I see in him, and then there's two or three other people that I know that are doing bronze, brass, and silver. What I see in him is that he has dismissed the concept of precious metal and he yeah. has embraced the concept of craftsmanship because his pieces are pretty cool and they're chunky and people want craftsmanship they simply can't afford you know we talked about that this ring you know one of the values of this ring and its lab diamond is that there's not a lot of material there other than diamonds there's not a lot of gold in it so and it's mass produced. I just set the stone in it. So it's, it's, you know, we're moving away from gold and diamonds and colored stone and, and expensive colored stones. And people are embracing silver with cool tourmalines and Montana sapphire. Yeah. You know, yeah. we have to think about being craftsmen, not about being merchants of gold or platinum. The, the thing that troubles me yeah, about that. Exactly what for myself what did you just say i missed it i want to know what you guys think of that that's my thing oh is that well, I I, I, i'm not I, if you I, don't have a budget for materials i'll make it in brass you yeah. know I, I just made these brass elephants they're not here but you know what the heck i well i want to be a craftsman i want to respond to what you said and what concerns about what you said for me is I've never really been interested in doing high volume production. And I think to yeah. make money selling brass, you're going to have to figure out how to crank this shit out. And that's, I've always been like the sole authorship, one thing at a time guy. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's I, solidly in my future or not. I've I actually, Going back to an earlier part of the conversation as to what we call ourselves, I started calling myself a small parts engineer when I talked yeah. to a lot of people. Well, because I have a line of tools that I sell to hat makers that I've CAD designed and 3D print. Uh, I, I have a small parts engineering page on my website. And um, and I'm I kind of, I'm really, getting cranked up about designing furniture and fabricating. Yeah. You know, working at 
like you talked about, I can buy steel a lot cheaper than I can buy gold these days. And the challenge of working at something other than an eight inch focal length is all yeah. of a sudden feels pretty good to me too. So, so I actually, I'm working. Wait, wait, let me ask you a question, Gary and Jim. Yeah. If a client came to you and wanted a very unique man's ring with two colored stones in it, and they want to pay $1,500 and you can make it in sterling silver or bronze, would you do it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, if, they've got the, if they've got the labor budget. Yes. Yeah. See, that's just perfect, perfect terminology. You have a materials budget and a labor budget. That's the whole thing is because my design fees aren't going to change. I'll make, um, you know, sterling silver, sure. Gold, sure. Platinum, sure. Uh, brass or bronze, sure. But my labor is not going to change. And right, that's yeah. one of the reasons I started selling gold to begin with is that you could get more for your labor selling gold, but that's when gold was, you know, yeah. 150 bucks an ounce or 300 bucks, 700 bucks an ounce. So, you know, quite honestly, right now with where I am in my professional life, even though I am a maker and a metalsmith, mm -hmm. uh, I really almost consider myself more of an educator. And so it gets back to something I talked a little bit about earlier. So I, I have no problem with doing anything in a less expensive metal. For example, um, it's been five or six years ago, but for a vet that just came back from the Middle East, uh, as a request from his, uh, at then soon to be wife, I actually melted down some old bullet casings and made his wedding band out of those brass bullet casings. Um, currently I'm literally, uh, working with some square tool stock and making wedding bands with a little bit of 18 karat gold for highlights for the rings, uh, for a, a Portland couple. Um, now, Sterling, again, this is the educator coming out at me, but I, I'm fascinated by metal and the various options of metals and their personalities. Uh, it's one of the classes I teach in the Alchemist Workshop. But if somebody's interested in silver, uh, one of the first things I ask, is it the metal itself or is it the visual quality that you're more interested in? Um, I tend to ask a lot of questions, uh, very personal questions. In fact, I've gotten to be very good friends with a number of my clients over the years because of that, well, the term today is micro, the micro relationships that I, I form with a lot of my clients. Um, but the continuum silver that I mentioned earlier, uh, I don't know if either of you have worked with it, but it's got a small percentage of palladium and it can be heat hardened to roughly about the same hardness as white gold, but yet it won't oxidize in the same way as silver or sterling silver, I should be more accurate. Um, so I'm, I'm giving you, you a long response to your question. What's that? Can you, can you solder and assemble it like silver? Absolutely. And I've even fused it with a torch as well. Wow. Okay. Joe uh, Hamer makes eyeglass, eyeglass frames out of it, which she mostly fabricates. Uh, right, and she's she's a huge advocate of uh, uh, continuing. Yeah, it's it's a great option for people that are really a tight budget for white metals. Um, now, the heat hardening is a two step process. I think first to eight hundred degrees, and then the thirteen, and then let it air cool uh, for the hardest. Uh, but 
you know, I've even set now, I, well, I've even set small diamonds in it. I wouldn't set large, large diamonds in it, but it's, it's a good option for really budget oriented, uh, white metal, uh, pieces. Um, so yeah, I've got no problem. It's, it, for me, the custom work is really about matching creating something that matches the the individual personalities their lifestyles and their budget it's it's really kind of that simple but it's not that simple to to uh discern through all of the bits and pieces so i want to back up i i presented where i think the industry is going what do you two think oh boy i'd like to hear gary but uh I think because of COVID and what we just talked about with people being more apt to go online to buy, but there is something again that I mentioned that I can't describe. I can't determine what's going on is, well, again, mostly what I do are engagement wedding rings. People are obviously still getting married. Are they simply getting these silicon bands, which quite honestly in this area in the Northwest, uh, because of the uh, physical activities a lot of my clients are actually going with for everyday rings or electricians or mechanics. Are they going with uh, other alternatives way beyond what we would consider the norm? That I don't know. Uh, but I would agree that the brick and mortar is, well, a bit antiquated right now. It's funny. I've, I've been hearing people say brick and mortar is coming back. Really? Uh, I think studios yeah. are coming back, but I don't think brick and mortar stores are coming back. I've heard that argument. I, you know, I ran a downtown retail store in Eugene for many years. And once I sold it, I sold that store to one of my employees. Um, I said, I'd never want to do that again because I, I love the freedom I have working online. Yeah. But now I live in Bisbee, Arizona, and it, I see you know, upwards of 1,500 people walking through our downtown, our small downtown in Bisbee. It's a town of maybe three to 5,000 residents. And I think on any given weekend, the population may almost double here in Bisbee. Yeah. And so here's what I would like to do. You mentioned studio, Joel, and I think this may not be dissimilar from what you're doing already. But I've talked with a couple of people here about the Busy Metal Arts Guild forming something like that. I would love to be in a situation to have access to those tourists and to be able to sell them things and get custom work out of it. But I don't want to sit in the store every day. Yeah. So if I had, you know, five guild members, perhaps, and we all had to be there only one day a week, or maybe, maybe you had to be there for two weeks, you know, what, six yeah. times a year or something, then that would be very cool. But if, okay, so all that being said, what do I think of the future of the jewelry industry? I, I think, first of all, I don't know. It's, I think, I think things are really hard to read right now. I think we live in a very unpredictable world. I think we live in a world where the government may try and impose lockdowns uh, again. I think that there's a segment that may or may not comply 
if they try and do that again. But it, but it could, there could be major disruptors, everything from climate to governmental actions to, you know, right now we're sitting on a paddle cake, uh, powder cake in our relationship with the Soviet Union, which is, yeah. I, I wish, you know, we're not going to talk about that, but it's something I could easily talk about. Um, I don't know. I, I can't predict, but I think that for people who do things like we do, I think craftsmanship is, is going to be, if it's not already a given, that's like the bottom line. That's the entry point. So I think uniqueness is going to play a bigger and bigger role uh, in in successful marketing of what I like to call sole authorship stuff. Yeah. And so that's, you know, I'm racking my brain for unique stuff to be able to manufacture, low volume manufacture. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then use that and perhaps repair work as Joel does, because repair always got me custom work when I had the retail store. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if I could expand on Gary, uh, and I don't want to yeah. cut you off. Are you finished, Gary? Uh, more or less, yeah. I could ramble on, but go ahead. I'd rather hear what you Well, saying. yeah, and I may be rambling at this point. But um, everything in our society today is mass produced. We don't know where it's made. We don't know who made it. And obviously, I'm biased. Uh, with who we are and what we do, the three of us. But right. at least there is a small audience. And for people like us, I don't, I don't need hundreds of thousands of clients. You know, uh, ten a month would be fantastic. So yeah, I've you know, said on the same thing, I've said the same thing. I don't need so, a bunch of warm bodies. Right. So, so with that concept in mind. Um, I think there is a, it's like music, you know, once you get away from popular music, you definitely lose numbers, sheer numbers, as far as who would listen to, say, Miles Davis kind of blue album, or, you know, Mozart, or whomever. But as you become, as you begin to create a defined, knowledgeable audience, I think for people that do what we do with integrity, with quality craftsmanship, with a real name and a real face, I think there will always be, even though compared to other venues, a small audience, but I think there will be a dedicated uh, audience that will always be looking for things with that kind of connection. And maybe I'm naive, but I, I feel that way. I think you're probably right. I would certainly like to believe you're right, but God, the way you know, the world's I, going, I, so I'm what, not. What, what's the but? <laughs> I want to bring this. I want to bring this back to the concept of us working with retail stores, mom and pop stores. Yeah, and that's kind we, of where we started. We had a project that we didn't do. But this is what a mom and pop store deals with on a typical basis. Lady comes in with a bracelet that she's had for years. I don't know the exact story my partner does. And I gotta tell you, Gary, the thing that would save you with the idea of opening a studio is if you had a partner that would go and sit there when you can't. And I'm really lucky that I have that person. Um, because there'll be days where I gotta stay home and do CAD, she'll go and man the studio. But um, 
So the lady wants to have this bracelet because it has sentimental value extended by two links. Well, we, it was probably made in China or India or Thailand or God knows where. And I think she paid six or $800 for this gold bracelet. And it's links with little rubies or emerald set in it. And we quoted out to rubber mold, take a link out, rubber mold it, cast to rebuild six, $800. The same thing she paid for it. And she actually, we didn't do it, but she thought about it. And there's always going to be that need for the person that can do that. You know, people today, when their cars die, they don't just go buy a new car, they go to a mechanic. And mechanics make more money than the car dealerships do. You know, the car dealerships make a couple thousand dollars when they sell the car. A mechanic over the life of the car will make as much as, you know, three, four times that. And I think we're in the same boat. Pete, I had a client recently that wanted me to use her gold and her stones and make a ring because they had sentimental value. So I did it. I videotaped every aspect of it, poured an ingot, rolled it out. She loved it. And there's always going to be those clients. I think people like, I'm not going to say that. I think people that can make things are going to become more and more valuable in the United States, in North America. And I think that jewelry studios, especially jewelry stores, especially mom and pops that will reach out to people like us and develop those relationships with us and for us will do well because it's a little extra money for them. Right. Well, that's true. Yeah. We're, we're here to help. I think all three of us are open to doing some trade work as long as, as long as we can work within some of the parameters that we've outlined. Is communication right. good? Uh, payment is fair and prompt. Uh, I think, I think, uh, uh, by the way, I'll just mention this now, not that we're wrapping this up, but in the, uh, on the, on the podcast, when I publish it, I'll put contact information for all three of us. I mean, mine's there anyway, of course, but I'll make it so, um, I, I don't want to get off the, uh, retail conversation or portion of the conversation, but, uh, I too do and have done a lot of repair and restoration over the years. And, uh, I had a series of pieces just in the last couple of months that was just a real joy. Uh, so there's an older woman here in town, um, probably mid seventies and her mom was a silversmith in the Bay area around Oakland during the fifties. And some of these pieces had deteriorated and they, she needed new bales made and such, and nobody else in the region would touch it. And uh, foolish or not, I, I really like challenges like that. So what, what was fun about them is rather than just buying a bale and, you know, tacking it on is to really, she, she gave me the latitude to spend time with each of the piece and they were a similar vein, all kind of a slightly Scandinavian polished uh, aesthetic. But it was such a joy to spend time with each of these pieces made 56 years ago and in essence, give them new life. And I really enjoyed that a great deal. Um, but getting back to the retail, something we haven't touched base on, and I don't know how many retailers would be willing to do this, 
But as far as the deposit that would be in our pockets as well as the retailers, because uh, Joel touched it based on something earlier where he was working for a retailer, did exactly what the retailers you know, wanted, and then it wasn't what the customer wanted, which was basically a breakdown in the communication between the customer and the retailer. Um, so do you think, either of you, do you think it's possible to create that kind of relationship with a retailer for doing these one-off pieces to get a deposit? And, you know, what other types of things could you see that could be manifested to both make it worth our while and our survival of working in these kind of relationships? I just had a conversation with the guy I'm doing trade work, um, actually former student of mine, former CAD student that is still in that learning curve and he, but he's getting projects that are, you know, a little over his head CAD wise. So I've been helping him out with that. And, uh, the, the, we just had this conversation about how, you know, back in the day you do trade work and it was, 30, 60, 90 sometimes, you know, and that was okay because we knew people were going to pay and, you, you know, you had a cash flow going. Um, and so that was kind of the norm. But I think we live in a whole different world right now. It's, it's a yeah. different world. Times are not necessarily easy for anybody. And that goes for your goldsmith designer CAD guy too. Uh, and so we had this conversation and actually he's starting to give me a deposit. Uh, uh, another cat. <laughs> and Sorry. then uh, giving me a deposit up front. And I just said, you know, I, I wish that I could just wait 30 days, but I'd like to get paid when the project is delivered, you know, and that's a kind, that's kind of the policy that I'm going to have to follow from now going forward because it's just not the same world as it was. And I think, I mean, the deal, diamond dealers used to say this all the time, you know, you got a deposit on the project. When you get the diamond, you pay me. Uh, I don't want to wait until you get the final payment on the project to get paid for the diamond that I sent you two weeks ago. I want to get right. paid now because you right. have the product. And it's kind of the same way, you know, if you're creating CAD files for somebody, um, like you have the product, you have a deposit to work with, you should pay your supplier. So yeah. kind of parallel ideas. I think it's I think it's good to have those discussions. Yeah. I think in, in an ideal world, I've got a couple that are working a couple of different ways. In an ideal world, you should get a $300 or $400 deposit once the client is committed to doing the thing. Now, I mean the retail client. So... Yeah the jewelry store should take a deposit because it's not a sale until money has transacted hands. So customer comes into a retail jeweler, the retail jeweler should talk about what they could do, show pictures. We should provide our retailers with photographs of work we have done. Branded, they can brand it with their brand. They could say where Gary Dawson is my design partner. So, the, the customer comes in and they go, we work with this designer, Gary Dawson. He is our partner. This is his work. 
do you, and then the retailer says, if you want us to proceed, we're going to need a deposit. That deposit is for design work and you should get all or part of it, Gary Dawson or Jim. Then you proceed to design. And then at the time, and this is what I do at the time when the customer says, that's what I want, go. Either the retailer pays the vendor for the materials that I order. Like say I order a diamond from this company or colored stones from this company or a casting from this guy. The retailer pays that bill. So I don't incur that expense. And then when I finish the product, the retailer pays me upon delivery of the product. And I think that's the way to do it. The retailer knows what the, what the cost is. We're transparent. They're paying us for our expertise and we're not taking a markup on the materials. This is the way I'd like to see it move forward. And the ones that I'm doing this with, I have a very good relationship with. The if retailer they, gets the materials markup, right? Not you. Right. I'm saying, you know, if my casting is $300 and the casting, because I'm not casting myself, if the casting house says it's a $300 casting, I send the link to the retailer. They pay the casting. The casting shipped to me. I clean it up. I build it. Yeah. I charge the retailer for my services, my labor. And I'm not playing monkey games with them. So they know what's going on, but that also teaches them the value of my labor. If the, if my finishing work and my setting work is superior to anything they've seen elsewhere, then they, they're excited to pay that. You know, if they don't think it's good enough, then they can say, Hey, I don't think that's good enough. I don't want to pay you this much. And they go somewhere else. This, sure. this is a tangential point, tangential point, but the, if a smart retailer can use your name, as a marketing thing, you know, say this guy, Joel, Mc, Joel McFadden has 50 years in the jewelry industry and he's my, he's my design partner and he's going right. to be doing the work. So that's something you'll should be able to brag about down the road. He's talking to the retail client. You know, Gary, there's three there that when we look, when we talk about, I'm sorry, Jim, it's uh, going to be going to be weird here, but you know, when we talk about certified titles for bench jewelers in this country, there's, there's a handful, there's GIA's bench certification program, which is right. what 400 people. There's not a lot of people that ever got certified. And right. then there's NJSA decided to make three of us mentor jewelers. You know, if you're a retailer, you own a mom and pop store, how would you like to say there's only three mentor jewelers in North America and one of them is my custom jeweler partner or Jim, are you a certified master goldsmith? I am not. Oh, uh, well, Jim, you know, Jim, you I, I, I'm a wannabe. <laughs> no, you could, you could play up. I mean, we've all got something we can play up. Joel and I've got that mentor jeweler thing, but yeah. you know, you could say, teaching. Yeah, he's he's taught all over the country at universities and community community colleges. Yeah, the, he's, one of the, right. he's one of the best guys in the country. He teaches other jewelers how to make shit. Right. And so, you know, that's that's your angle. We've we've all we've all had this I mean, with fifty years under our belts, we've all got some accolade that we can use that that a retail jeweler could use to yeah. promote the relationship that they have with us. And they can make a lot of money 
or any jeweler. You know, you're working with any, you know, a lot of people now want to work with these larger firms, um, these companies that do it all. But, you know, I just set a stone, a center stone in a ring that came from this big custom house. And I spent a half hour tightening all the melody that was loose. Brand new ring, a brand new ring. And here I am tightening the melody. Yet there's a ring that's 35 years old, full of melody that nothing's ever gotten loose or come out that I built. Right. It, you know, there's something to be valued for that. Yeah, it, you know, it's fairly common. I'll see somebody post an image and these are not slacks, but I'll see a piece that's finished posted online and you it's fairly close up image and you will see that the prong is not all the way against the stone. Right. You know, it's going to be problematic. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think stone setting seems to be the, the most lacking talent in the trade right now. There's a million guys that do CAD. But, but you know, we talk about CAD. I, I started working for a company with a close friend of mine. I won't get into it. But they have decided to have me do all the CAD because they outsource their CAD to some of these big companies that were charging them $35 to $55 for a CAD model. But what would happen is the, the model would come in cast and there were no prongs because somehow they left the prongs off or the prongs were not valid models or the ring was way off in size or they sent two earrings that had parts, but they sent three of one side and one part of one the other side. Right. And you know, it was cheap, but it became a delay. I, I, I think this would be another Wonderful conversation to have, uh, Gary. But so, Joel, I don't know if you know, but my brother, uh, I got into jewelry God, back in the mid 80s. And Tom has done very well over the years, uh, very visible in the community. But neither one of us, even though we've explored CAD, we still love the process of making, which is what we do and why we do it. But I think what we're starting to see and this is where maybe another conversation could take place is you're getting it's like again the guitarist or the photographer who has a camera no knowledge but they've got the camera you've got all these people doing cad but no fundamental knowledge of the structural needs the material qualities and personalities and such but yet they're creating these pieces of jewelry that might look great but once they're worn they'll fall apart in a week or two um, and I've, I've addressed that very thing in some of the presentations I've made at Santa Fe Symposium and whatnot. Uh, I can't, I can't agree with more. I've actually even said that CAD almost ruined the jewelry industry because right. every, every gamer, you know, every, everybody that took a few computer classes, uh, in college decided, oh, I can design jewelry and make a lot of money, but they don't have that background of having actually fabricated and maybe even more important repaired jewelry in the past right so they don't have any idea what it looks like so yeah uh cad is a double-edged sword i mean people get a few lessons under their belt or they do some self-study and uh decide they're a jewelry designer <laughs> and uh it usually ends up 
So I feel like I've gotten a little bit off topic. Are there some things you'd like to maybe touch base on uh, as far as the main topics we, we started today or well, let, let's, I'd like to do this because I want to promote this through um, the newspapers that I write for and, and that, you know, what can we, the three of us, tell the mom and pop retailer, what's some good pieces of advice we can tell them to grow their custom business? Ooh, good one. That is a great question. If they're not doing cat or if they're not doing custom design already, if they are mostly a merchant and or maybe have a repair shop, but they're not doing custom work, start doing it because custom is king, has been for the last number of years and probably will continue to be in the future. So that's one of the first things you can do. Reach out to either someone you know, uh, knowing someone, uh, but you know, make sure they know what they're doing too. And if and if not, if you don't know anybody, reach out to one of us three. Um, we're glad to help you out with something like that. So you're saying find that one person that will take the time to help you work through those projects. Yeah. And is knowledgeable. Right. And and can can actually can actually not to overuse the word mentor, but if you're unfamiliar with the custom process, try and find somebody that can guide you through that process right. in order so that you can right. be successful. I, I think that's really well said, Gary, because I think a lot of people either might be afraid of the Pandora's box of getting into to custom work or right. just not really aware of what's possible. One of the things I tell my clients, and I try to say this to everyone, is really anything is possible. It's just sorting through your likes as well as your dislikes, as well as the functionality of the object uh, in in creating. But uh, with the, the potential of custom work, they could fulfill any need beyond what they can simply find in, say, for example, a Stellar catalog. And no disrespect to Stellar because I've been using them for about 40 years, but there is a potential whole new world beyond what they supply as far as designs and you know, partially or existing pieces. And uh, I, I think educating your, your potential retailer as well as your potential final client, uh, well, there's that education word again for me, right. but uh, I, I just find that to be really an opening invitation to things well beyond what we can perceive or understand. But yeah, I, and I think it's more important that a, a retailer develop a relationship with a small firm, one or two or three people that will be there for them and will not try to steal their clients, but partner with them. It's really yeah. about partnership, partnership, partnership. partnership. You know, that, that's a perfect, that's a perfect word, Jill. It, yeah. You know, is it really is a relationship. It's a partnership. Yeah, you know, I mean, and one will benefit the other. Right. And I mean, you know, consider each other's needs. You know, I, when I work with my favorite companies, you know, I consider that 
the, the quality of what they want and that I deliver what I tell them I'm going to deliver is really important. And, you know, price is important too, but transparency to the retailer. I want them to know that they're paying for my labor because this is a difficult job or this is a really easy job and the labor is not going to be that much. But, you know, I, it, we almost have to educate the retailer the same way we have to educate the, the retail client. Right. And, you know, we have to do it in a way that doesn't embarrass or, you know, I, I, one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older about this trade is they don't care what I know or what I think. They care what I can do for them. And if I focus my, my energies on can I solve your, what is your problem? Can I solve it? And then I go, this is my, what I think is the most effective and efficient way to solve what you want, to create what you right. want. And I don't focus on my, you know, is it silver, is it gold, is it platinum? Oh, I only work in this. It's really interesting for me being in the market I'm in because I'm in a very decidedly one of the last strongholds of the true middle class markets. And I have spent the last 16 or 18 years of my life making extraordinarily expensive jewelry. And some of my clients say, you know, how much would it cost for you? You hear this all the time. And retailers need to know this too. Person comes in, I want to have a custom engagement ring. What's a custom engagement ring cost? Well, my partner the other said they said something interesting, which is legit, is Joel has made million dollar engagement rings. And I have. I've made million dollar pieces of jewelry. But what's the point? What do you want? It's not about what I've done, it's about what the client wants. Can I do that? Yes. And we have to shift that. What do you think, Gary? Well, besides hiring us, what can we? What advice can we give? What, um, what advice can we give the retailers for actually building the custom business from the ground up? How do you? You know, one thing. How do you promote it? Have a book or a wall that has photos of custom pieces that you've done for previous clients. Right. Example. Again, no, again th that's something that we could share, probably. Yeah. Right. Right. We could help uh, provide that. Right. Well, the other thing is marketing and promotion. And I think I've said, you know, uh, print advertising maybe isn't the, the most, but get active on social media. Um, find, find the Facebook groups that are relevant to your community uh, and start talking about custom work. There. We right. could we could provide video of us creating stuff to our retailers for them to use. That right. Cool. So, yeah. Joe, when you say that, are you referring to process videos? Yes. Yeah. You know, melting their gold, rolling sure. it through a mill, setting the diamonds. Sure. There's a lot of that out there. I actually, you know, and I know we've been on for a while, but I'm really enjoying this. I'll go out on another tangent. I have a relatively successful YouTube channel that talks about gemstone setting. And I've been being approached a lot by people. I had a client that came into the store who had had a ring custom built 
by an online custom jeweler. And she'd had it built, I believe, three times. And she was frustrated because they couldn't set the stone right. And she brought it in and she looked at my partner and she looked at me and she goes, it is you. And we were like, what? She goes, you're Joel. You're the guy on the YouTube channel. I go, yes. She goes, cool. I found you on YouTube because I want to know how to do this right. And I think you know how to do it right. Is this right? She shows me her ring and the diamond's crazy crooked. I mean, it's like, oh my, I can't believe somebody let this out. Clearly, as I told her, she was dealing with a retailer that was jobbing things out to the lowest bidder. Who can do this? Who can set this diamond really fast? Cheapest. You know, yeah. you go to a trade, you go to one of those. They, it was in L.A. Uh, the, the retailer had gone to one of the jewelry shops where you got 50 jewelers sitting in 50 boxes. He holds it up. Who can do this right now? And it was crooked and the prongs were screwed up, but she had seen me on, re on wanted me to do it. So I think we can provide that to a retailer, the fact that we are considered experts in the trade. And um, I think that's helpful. Yeah. How about, how about this? Would you be willing to fly out to a retail establishment to do a weekend event for no pay with only the possibility of getting custom work out of it as long as your expenses are covered if they promise me four or six appointments well what if they can't promise that but they will pay your expenses what if sure. they can make no guarantees they live cool. in some some little town in the middle of nebraska they've yeah. never really thought about doing custom work before and uh and but they would really like to give it a try so they so they promote for a month have a weekend event and they can't promise you any work at all but they will pay your expenses to come for the weekend i think i would do that <clears throat> i think that needs to be a regional thing you know like i'll do that in the carolinas and i am planning on doing that i had a friend who built a massive and I mean massive, multi-million dollar jewelry appraisal business. And what he did right. was he would go to a store and he would say, look, you get me 10 appointments. We'll do two days. We'll do Friday and Saturday. You get me 10 appointments each day and I will sell the appraisal. He would sell the appraisal. So I would. Well, do what you're saying is that they would set up the appointments in advance. So that would be one of the conditions. He set the appointments. It's up to me and my partner to sell my services but right. give me in front of five or ten five clients a day well, you know. why would that be regional i mean i know jim and i work exclusively online right now anyway so it doesn't I, matter to me if they're in barrow alaska mm -hmm. or or somewhere in florida you know as long as they're covering my travel expenses i'd go anywhere for something like that sure but i think today with the way airlines and all are it's just I don't know. In my opinion, if I can drive there or if it's an easy one-way flight there, I'll do it. You know, if it was somebody in Atlanta, I could fly to Atlanta easily. If it's somebody in Chattanooga, I would do that. But I wouldn't want to do somebody in Arizona. I'd recommend you, you know. Well, that's, that's something us three can do for each other, you know, by the way. Right. 
And I had clients in New England because I was up there. The other thing, you talk about the change in the jewelry world and what retailers, especially the mom and pops, need to know is, and I was going to segue into this with the YouTube thing. One of the biggest groups of people that find me on YouTube is um, kitchen room designers. I think that's what I call them. It's somebody that is, they've watched some YouTube videos, they learned some things, they figured out where they can buy diamonds and gold from, and they basically will sit with their friends in their kitchens and their friends' kitchens and doodle up a drawing and then outsource everything. And they might do two a month, but it's an extra job on the side. And there's a lot of people doing that. Um, some of them are using CAD. They're using Rhino is very popular with this or counter sketch. They, they'll do counter sketch and they send it to Stellar. But it is, it's a growing threat to the typical brick and mortar store because, you know, the guy that lives next door to you might be selling custom jewelry through some service that he's dug up that mom and, you know, the average client doesn't want to. So the remedy might be to get hooked up with somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Yes, yeah, so promote the competitive advantage. Yep. Hey what guys, we've gone for we've gone for a couple hours. Yeah. I, we we can extend the conversation, but here's another thing I'll suggest: is that maybe we agree to do this again. Sure, I'm good. I would either. love to. We can elaborate on this topic, or we can. You know what I'll do? Let's solicit listenership to give, you know, what would you like to hear about? Would you like to hear different aspects of custom work and how a designer can work with the retail establishment? Would you like stuff on stone setting? Would you like, would you like, uh, you know what? Tell us what you want. Tell us what you want because we're opinionated. And we drink. <laughs> you know what? That that should be the name of the podcast. Three opinions. We know things. You are drinking. Three I drink. Therefore, I am. You're right. Uh, no, what did the guy? What did he say? I think no. I drink and I know things. That one of my favorite TV shows right now is comedians and cars getting coffee. Have you ever seen that show? It's <laughs> oh, that great. would be great. That would be really fun. So, Jewelers drinking yeah, and talking Seinfeld. on a podcast. Yeah, Seinfeld. I, I've seen a couple episodes, and that's brilliant. Yeah, um, I don't mind. Gary, I don't mind the damage gym. You know what? Well, well the damage gym thing came from damage gym. I'm a I'm a designer, not a miracle worker. Oh, so so uh, that being actually a name gym that's one of my favorite phrases that i will actually use usually once or twice a week damn it jim i'm a jeweler not a doctor <laughs> um, right right yeah but, uh, we... <laughs> but so, uh no i've got a few ideas I'll, I'll email them to you both uh if if they sound of interest but uh i've enjoyed this and you know if i fit into your equation i'd love to continue to participate in one way or another absolutely i think we could do that well listen uh if you like this if you like what we've done here today hit the like button hit the like button and share it with your friends so that they can like it too and so i've got one 
I'm sorry, I've got yeah, one go question on that. So can you supply us a link for this? I, I think you said it was going to go out Tuesday. Absolutely. Pro uh, yeah, probably Tuesday morning is when I'll launch okay. this actual thing. Because I, I, I did do a Facebook post today that I was going to have the conversation that was coming out sometime next week. So uh, where, did that, where did that thumbs up bubble come from on your feed right now? Did you do that, Joel? Nope. Not on purpose. <laughs> uh, maybe. That's weird. I didn't do it. But did you see it? Did you see it in the video? Yeah. I mean, did you see there was a, let me think. Here. I just did. <laughs> oh, you just did it. How did you do it? Well, uh, down in the lower left hand of the screen, there's a react with a hand. Oh, look. Yeah, but that's I cool just, put it on the screen. Yeah, I just I did a you. like. But it, did you see my like? No, I didn't. Okay, I hid love. Oh, there it is. There it is. There's love. Okay, I see. I didn't even know that. Thanks for showing that. Okay, there's a thumbs up. So if you guys saw, I didn't see it on my screen, but you guys may have seen it on yours. And, and okay, Joel, so. it, at some point, uh, my brother and I came into this completely from chance, uh, well, for me through college, but I'm so envious of your family background uh, in jewelry. So at some point, I would love to hear more about that. And I don't know if you've written about it that I could read, but... Uh, That'd be fascinating to learn more about. I need I need to talk about it more because it was really shocking when I went with my son to the Isle of Mall. And one of the interesting things there is as a as a granite a marble called Iona marble, which is only available on the island of Iona, which is where all the kings and queens of Scotland were buried, and it's the first Christian area in Scotland. And they were making jewelry with that there and they gave me some and it's it's you know to go to a studio the funniest thing was that the studio still has a thatched roof and they had an old bellows driven casting furnace where they pulled everything out and put a naycraft in it <laughs> but the bellows was still there <laughs> it was it was pretty fascinating to learn that and um in gaelic mcfadengen which is my name translates to family of goldsmiths. Oh, so, no kidding. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. So we know 15, 15 <clears throat> years we know we were making jewelry. Wow. I didn't want to be, I did not want to be a jeweler. My son did not want to be a jeweler. And you know, the, the story about my son is he was, he spent almost two years living on the Appalachian trail and he was done with it. Some stuff happened and he just got done with it. And he walked into a jewelry store and he says, I set my first diamond when I was eight years old and I hired him. <laughs> so, wow. Wow. All Very right. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's start shutting this one down. If you're listening, hit the like button, subscribe to the Substack. Um, this uh, cross post to Spotify. I would rather have you go to my Substack, because that's where it originates. Um, and um, and let's do this again. We'll come up with some ideas. Uh, this will get posted on all our social medias, I think. And uh, Joel, you were gonna you were gonna get Southern Jewelry News to. I think they'll it. they'll link it and they'll push it. Should be. Cool. I think I think MJSA. I sent them a press release here recently. 
not for this specific episode, but they're, I think they're going to do a little public service announcement about the podcast. So anyway, hopefully we can, uh, hopefully we can be of service to the industry because really that's kind of my whole thing here. It's yeah, absolutely. It's given so much to me um, that giving a little back feels pretty good. And ask well, questions. guys. Yeah, and ask questions. Leave on on the Substack at right after you like it, hit the like button. Then write us some suggestions about topics you'd like to have us to discuss. Damn it, well, Jim. boys, it's been a real honor. I appreciate the invitation, and it's been a real treat. Oh, I'm humbled about getting with you guys. Right on. Okay, talk to you later. All right. Have a good night. Bye.